Welcome everyone to the latest Leaders Performance Podcast. David Kushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. John Porch, Lead Writer at the Leaders Performance Institute with you for another episode. John, how are you? Very well, thank you, David. Excellent news. It's another archive session and we're going back in time to when? London 2016, David. Excellent. What's the topic? So the topic is feedback. And the speakers that day were Scott Han, who's the coach of Max Whitlock, who won double gold for Team GB at the Rio Olympics in the floor exercise and the pommel horse in the gymnastics. I remember it well. Alongside him? Joe Cole, the head of strings at the Royal Academy of Music. Marvellous stuff. Feedback the topic. Give us a few more details. Right, well, they're talking about the ways that they can make feedback resonate with their charges. And it obviously it's built on things such as trust and developing a relationship with the student or the athlete. And David, they also encourage their students or athletes to know themselves, to become students of the game, if you will. And the interesting point is that feedback cannot always be about coaches' personal taste. They're not there creating carbon copies, as they say on stage. Sounds like an intriguing session, John. Before we get into it, a reminder for everybody listening that the latest Leaders Sport Performance Summit is but a few weeks away. Soldier Field in Chicago, the 10th and 11th of July 2018. We've got a super lineup of uh, top practitioners from all sorts of fields uh, joining us to share best practice and insight. We will have representation from the Toronto Maple Leaves, from the Toronto Blue Jays, the San Francisco 49ers. IDEO, the Atlanta Falcons, US Ski and Snowboard Association, plus a couple of top authors as well. All the speakers, all the details are available at leadersinsport.com and that's where you can also sign up to become a member of the Leaders Performance Institute and frankly, why wouldn't you? Right, let's get into this archive session on feedback. My feedback on this intro, John, excellent. So let's get going. You're very kind, David. The idea behind this panel when I was preparing, I was telling them that when people asked me who I was getting to moderate with, everybody was very excited. And I'm like, yes, they're brilliant, it's wonderful. And then I would tell them what we were talking about and everybody went, oh, feedback, oh, right? We have such complex relationships with this. We think it's that someone's going to um, tell us what they think or we have to hear things we don't want. But what was really interesting as we were getting ready and what we thought would be interesting to talk about is that when you do feedback at the level that you two do, it's actually about relationship and finding alignment. And so I thought that would be an interesting place to start. When you think about your relationship, Scott, with Max, how you found that alignment and what that relationship has been like over time. Well, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> as you said, it's, it's, it's about you know, the journey that you've been on. In gymnastics, you start coaching um, children usually when they're at a very young age. And, and you start by being quite a, um, a dictatorship um, it, relationship, if you like, you have to tell them what to do, how to how to eat, how to breathe, how to walk. Uh, you, you also have to inspire them. You have to motivate them. You, have, you, you are the key or the sole driver in their in their sport. But you have to ultimately allow them to learn to love the sport. As they develop, uh, you then your 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 task or your or your key um, objectives is is to instill um, that ownership into them, so they're starting to own their own gymnastics or their own sport and finding their own motivation rather than a, you know, intrinsic sort of, you know, trying to find their intrinsic sort of motivation themselves. Yeah, so when they were doing, does that translate into how you actually 
coach or what you tell them, you know, for instance, after well, a routine? Or absolutely. It, it changes and it develops. And, and I think, you know, if you get that, um, that pattern correct, you, you, you naturally instill that relationship between you. Um, and you, you start to be able to communicate, as you just saw with the musicians through their eyebrows. You know, you, you can almost... You, um, it's funny, I'm sorry, I keep seeing this stopwatch. I feel like I'm on a podium waiting for my warm-up to finish. <laughs> um, yeah. You can see, uh, you, you learn that you can communicate and, and you can only do that through your relationship and through your experience. So, you know, a lot of what you do is you develop your relationship um, to ensure that you're on a level um, and you're able to, to, to really gain that trust. Um, and with that trust becomes a mutual respect, uh, which is integral. So Walk us through, for instance, like in the world when you guys changed routines. Okay, so yeah, the World Championships. Um, in, previously, um, at World Championships in 2014, Max didn't have the best competition. There was quite a lot of, it was a new thing. He was successful, it was, he was competing as a successful athlete. Um, so there was a lot of external pressure. He was actually trying to retain titles, trying to go and, and, and continue to be this, this, this icon. Um, you know, and with that came a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation. We didn't have the greatest um, of competitions in China. Um, so we decided that in, London, in Glasgow in 2015 um, that we would just keep routines very simple, very stable, so that we could build that confidence. Um, in it, we found ourselves in the pommel final. Uh, Lewis Smith, uh, Max's teammate, was also in the, in the pommel final. Um, but he was sort of coming back on the scene as well. So we, we didn't necessarily expect him to, to, to be up there we expected him to be up there. We didn't expect him to be challenging for, for a gold medal. Um, so we stuck to the plan. Uh, we you know, went into the warm-up. Lewis competed first. Max was last. So we was in the warm-up pool whilst Lewis was competing. We didn't know what was going on. There was no TV screens or anything. Um, and, and Max was warming up his, his basic routine, if you like. He'd, only done, he'd been doing that for like three months now. Mm -hmm. um, We'd finished his warm-up. It was about a ten-minute walk, uh, sorry, a five-minute walk from the warm-up hall to the gym. We was walking through that tunnel, um, and I happened to look on my phone and I saw a tweet come up, and Lewis Smith just scored 16, which is a massive score. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do at that point for a second. I thought, you know, do I just leave it as it is, because that's going to be a very difficult score to beat with the reduced routine, um, or do I? talk to Max about the situation, mm -hmm. knowing that if I did, that's going to put a lot of pressure on him. I'd just mm -hmm. seen what happened a year ago. But also knowing that we'd both trained very hard not to come second. Um, mm -hmm. So I decided that I would say, you know, Max, do you want to change your routine? He knew me inside out and said straight away, why do I need to? <laughs> yeah. And I said then, okay, look, we, we've got a choice. If you, if if you want to go and get a medal, I think you stick to what you're doing. If you want to go and win, you're going to need to change your routine. So we literally changed his routine in that tunnel and done something completely different. And, and those that know gymnastics at all, it's, it's all about repetition and, and you know, training the same thing time and time and time again. And for three months, we hadn't even done one of the elements that we, we put in his routine. Um, and we went out. Of course, I was an absolute nervous wreck at that moment because yes. if he fell off, it was all my fault. <laughs> if he succeeded, it was his fault. So um, <laughs> I stood there and, and, you know, and then there are times in your career when you have to back yourself. And at that moment, I decided to back Max and back myself and our relationship. Uh, and it paid off. By one-tenth, he became world champion and the first ever world champion um, 
for a male British gymnast. So, uh, yeah, looking back, you know, a it's a remarkable, <laughs> remarkable decision. Right. Um, you know, but I think it's that relationship and it's that, that bond that enables you to, to be able to do that in certain right. situations. And pivot. And so I'm curious, too, when we talked, one of the things you said that was really surprising to me is how little one-on-one -on -one instructor time they actually have versus encouraging them to be independent as that's, well. That's absolutely right. Uh, if you're studying um, an instrument at the Royal Academy of Music like those uh, guys there, um, they will have one hour of one-to-one -one instrumental lesson a week, um, which is, sounds very little, and it is, it is little, it, but it's really because our goal in the four-year um, bachelor's course of study there is that by the end of it, um, they can teach themselves. Um, not necessarily teach other people, but they, that we teach them to know themselves intimately and really be absolutely secure in their knowledge and understanding of their own, not only their own technique and ability and skills, but they've got confidence in their artistic personality as well, which I think is one of the, the really key things. What, and there's so much of what Scott says is so resonating in terms of this trust, this understanding, that's knowing that you actually... I mean, to, to have known that Max was going to be fine to do that altered routine, that comes from a hell of a lot of really integrated thought together. And I mean, I think this is, what, this is something that happens um, in teaching music at, at, this, at this level. It's exactly the same as well when you start somebody off as, at a young age. It is didactic. It is, you know, you're instructing them, but it evolves as they become a musician in their own right. Um, and I think the fact is that, you, you know, you're coaching a professional, not teaching a student. But at the same time, it is, um, you know, this is what we aim for, is that the, the, it's this smooth transition into the professional world where they have their own inbuilt confidence. I think that's what the parallels are. The piece about knowing when to give what kind of feedback is also really interesting, because we were talking about before that, you know, the coach and then the athlete gets information back from their body, the musician gets information back from the sounds and their instrument as well. So when you all are thinking through what timing to give feedback. For instance, let's say something has gone poorly in a practice room. Mm -hmm. How do you think through when do you say something or what you say? Um, I think if it goes poorly in the practice room, you welcome it because you only learn from making mistakes, really. So um, that's how you find your, find your boundaries. But it's if a performance has not gone well, you have to be really careful how you handle um, that. And never straight afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the one of the key roles. I don't know if it's the same with with you, Scott. But I mean, we have um, the, the adrenaline isn't does not prepare the body well to receive con constructive even feedback straight mm -hmm. afterwards. But often, you know, with time to reflect and then a conversation about it, you know, at the next lesson or a couple of days later on the phone afterwards or something like that. And you've said there are some pretty catastrophic stories of feedback as well, right? That people tend to remember it? Yeah, people always remember the bad feedback that came at the wrong time, you know. I mean, I think that's... that's and it's very hard, I have to say, for parents um, of, of ch talented children or children, you know, who go off and do the school concert or something like that, because that is not something that's very well understood. And sometimes, um, you know, I remember just... I mean, a really well-known player um, who says to me that one of the things he remembers you know, vividly, and this is having had Grammys and incredible awards and a fantastic international career, he still remembers his dad coming up to him after the school um, concert, which was actually a nativity play, where he'd played his violin. God knows what that was happening there. But, um, mm -hmm. And um, his father had come up and said, why weren't you standing up straight and why wasn't your bow level? 
you know, straight afterwards. And he remembered that now, and he's 48, you know, and had a fantastic career. But you know, that is an exaggerated form, but you, you know, um, it, a well-timed comment can be really, really useful. Right. You know, something to hold on to. I think it's, um, I think it's also worth, worth bearing in mind the thing about feedback is that so much of the feedback one gets as a performer in the arts is um, unbelievably sort of unhelpful in either it's ludicrously positive um, or it's incredibly negative. But we don't have this marvellous thing that you have, which is marks or scores. You know, the only scores we have are the music to read off. But um, So I think it is actually, uh, you know, feedback in itself, you, you have to really be able to filter it for useful, positive information rather than just personal taste, right. reaction. Particularly in the arts. Mm. So what have you noticed along those lines in terms of timing for feedback with an athlete in particular maps? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head um, with, with the, the big events, the main things. When, when you're in a stressful environment, you have to be very, very careful of what you say and when you say it. You, know, you, you can be responsible as a coach or as a leader or as a manager of completely ruining mm-hmm. the whole performance mm-hmm. um, and certainly the rest of their career, um, potentially. Mm. But with gymnastics um, in particular, you are literally with the guys 30, 40 hours a week, you travel with them. So there is a, there is a, um, a flow of, of regular feedback that you, you have to give. Um, and be, you have to section it. So you've got your regular feedback. So yep, yeah, okay, that was good, okay, maybe one more. But when it's going wrong, when there's, a, when there's something that you really, you've got to have the timing correct. And quite often, the timing isn't even that day. It could be two, three days after. Uh, and, and, and also, when, you, when you, you have your relationship with your athletes or your, your students that you've built up with for a long time, you, know, you, you can see when they're ready. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll, they'll almost just look, and you can see in their eyes, OK, now's the time, and, and, you, and you have to catch that moment. And if you can catch that moment, you know, I, I, don't, I don't sit here and say that I'm this wonderful scientist that knows all the bits and pieces about stuff, but I feel like I've got this ability to get on a level with the, the gymnasts and really empathise with them and, and, and catch those moments. And I think that's one of the keys to success. Uh, and making them feel special and valued along the journey. So even if they have done something that they need to correct or need to look into, change, or even completely remove, because that's, that's a big thing. If you have to say, look, you're not good enough to do that. <laughs> if you say it like that, that's, they're devastated. Right. Yeah. You have to manipulate or influence, should I say, mm-hmm. that situation and that, and that decision. Uh, and again, it comes with years and years of, of, of you know, if, if you walk into a room with someone yeah. and you watch something, immediately they're, they're, you've got to learn about each other. Right. Whereas if you spent 10, 15 years with that individual, you build up that relationship. So you're able to do that almost without communicating verbally. And managing your own anxiety as a coach, right? So I think some of the urgency that we see for giving feedback is that, um, you're in a position of low control as a coach watching an outcome, right? And then they get all of the urgency and the need to say something built up. And then the timing is about them instead of it being you know, received or the right time. And what was interesting is your piece there about saying, okay, when is the moment? And you're actually looking for a signal from him, mm-hmm. right? Instead of when do I get to say what I need to say um, and that you're actually waiting for something that's permission. How often do you find that high performers know the problem before you say it? They, I would say that they often know there's a problem, but they don't necessarily identify it um, immediately or, 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 you know, they just express it in terms of discomfort or not feeling that something's mm-hmm. gone right, you know, it hasn't had a, a sort of 
a tingle factor. Um, but I think uh, there are a certain number of sort of almost checklists you can go through mm-hmm. to, to, to identify what, what might have caused that feeling. Um, but you certainly absolutely know, every performer knows when something's just gone right. Mm-hmm. But what's really difficult is identifying the, the feedback that you have to do after that sort of performance to make sure that you capture and keep all the things that have worked. Right. Um, and uh, really analyze that so that, you know, so much feedback is about what's gone wrong with something. But right. It's very important in self-assessment and in assessment to make sure that you identify the things that are working and good and how to preserve them while you're developing other areas as well. I think that's, it's, that's not just mm. giving the, the class, but you I, know. It's, it's I don't know if it's the same with you, but in, in gymnastics in particular, it's more than just a science, it's a feeling. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to have that feeling, and, and you know you, you'll know when something's not right because you've got a feeling, and mm-hmm. sometimes you can't even describe what that means and and and, and translate it, but you know it, mm-hmm. and it's then you bring the athlete or the student, I guess, into that communication, and and I think communication is a, is a really really mm-hmm. strong word there because you know everyone can talk about communication. Of course, communication is important, but what really is communication? What Mm-hmm. If, you, if you actually really break it down, a lot of it is, yeah, you're trying to influence one another, but... It's reciprocal. You're trying to do it exactly mm-hmm. together and, and making each other... Because, you know, as, as a leader, if you're frustrated as well, mm-hmm. sometimes that can, you know, bounce onto the athlete or the mm-hmm. performer. Um, you know, so you, you have to communicate because, uh, you know, at that point, you're, you're both adults, so you both need to feel good. Right. You both need to feel on top of your game. Um, and if you can get that in harmony, then you, you're going to just, you know, take on the world. And it's a source of information. I think that's interesting. So then they're pulling some of the content they need, and then you are in a position of responding to yeah. that rather than just coming in and being something they have to filter out. I think that's true. I mean, you have to have very much a sense of um, both parties, if you like, tuned to, to receive as well as to transmit and receive mm-hmm. um, you know all the time it's a you know because just one word or a, or a reaction can can speak an awful lot of mm-hmm. you know that's an awful lot of practice hours can, can I, be. I started off I, I was I was massively egotistical I thought I knew everything as a coach and, mm-hmm. and you know you I, weren't I, born just like this giving <laughs> feedback you know what I mean? yeah exactly you know I'm yeah. sitting back in my chair like I know everything now but you know I certainly made a lot of mistakes on the way and I can remember you know mm. Storming out, not storming out of a class, but turning my back and being, oh, you know, I've had enough. And but you don't realise the impact that has. Mm-hmm. Well, you do now. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sitting here talking about it, and um, it. I feel like I've only got to that stage by learning. But if you can, if you can actually listen to what mm-hmm. the experiences we've had, and and actually take those valuable lessons and and imply them now at an early stage, I feel like I could maybe have had even more success. And I feel like you know. Um, that the, the feedback at the right time in, with the right body language is absolutely essential. Yeah, I think it's true. And I think it's also um, incredibly important that there's this, this feeling that um, you take your giving of feedback very responsibly, mm-hmm. that you own it very much, that you sort of think, I've really thought about this and this is why I'm saying it and this is what it's all about and this is the purpose. It's, it's not a sort of, because I know everything, I'm going to tell you this. That, that is disastrous, actually, I think. And you said something interesting about creating pale carbon copies. Can you say some more about, the, 
think that's yeah. an interesting thing about finding authenticity. Yeah, I mean, I think in music, it's it, 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 the great thing is about it is that it, music is kind of a, it's a total shapeshifter. I mean, it changes all the time, and there are many different versions of a piece of music as there are people playing it. You know, mm -hmm. um, but I think it, you have to really shy away from trying to tell people how to play it in the way that you would play it. Mm. Um, because then otherwise that's all they're doing is trying to copy you and it's not going to be, it's not even going to be theirs, it's going to be yours, except it's not going to be good because mm. <laughs> it's come through the filter of somebody else. You have, to, you have to encourage them to find, I mean it sounds a bit cliche to say find a voice, but that in a sense you've got right. to teach them how to have a relationship with the composer, who, of course, by the way, is usually dead, um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and to, to, to make it a very natural conduit between the materials they're working with, the music, and what their technique and ability is and how they can deliver it. Um, and so very much it is, it is you know, telling them what, what they're saying in their performance, saying, Did you, do, you, do you mean that to come across like that? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Is that how you quite meant that to come out? Um, and if they say yes, then you just say, well, look, you know, maybe think of it, doing it another way or something like that if it hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, or really applauding when you can say, I totally got what you were trying to do there. So that's mm. it, it. But it is, it is that thing about fixing their vision of a piece of music yeah. into their artistry and so that there aren't any blurred lines anywhere. Do you feel it sort of physically when it's not authentic? How do you... Sort of yeah, judge actually, that. Gina. If somebody, I mean, I actually get a physical reaction in my mouth <laughs> if um, you know, sort of, to, uh, you know, particularly if something's out of tune, mm -hmm. you know, and it just it it, it really it's sort of not around. But I mean, I think the thing is that I don't, don't know about you, t students. They teach you so much as well. I mean, you can if you've got the right um, if you've got tune to receive in the right way, you can you can. Um, they can, they can explain certain things to you that you wouldn't have thought of just by having done it in a particular way. And it's not something you're going to work on maybe with them again, but mm -hmm. you can take that and use it with another student. Have you actually, found that too? Yeah. Completely. Uh, and, and I've actually tried to enhance that. Um, and I've found that a lot of the learning that we've done has actually not been through me coaching them and telling them technical expertise. Mm -hmm. It's almost through giving them the, the confidence to... to develop and, and find themselves yeah. um, and when they when they can do that and, and a lot of that is, is by play is by is by experimenting um, and again you know as long as you're sort of keeping the guidelines and okay here's the end target here's the end goal we're not just mm -hmm. going off on some random ta uh, tangent yeah. um, you can actually find that you learn so much more and then you can take your experiences that you've got from your athletes and pass it on to others but mm. I don't know if you find the same that no one person no one athlete <laughs> no one situation is the same so, you know, it's great. It's a great feeling that, that obviously we've had this success with Max and some of the other athletes, but I'm under no illusion that I can't just repeat that with somebody else. I'll have to change. And I think one of the biggest things that I've got now, mm -hmm. I started off as, with a very closed mindset. I knew everything. I, uh, I've, I, I've got a massively open mindset now, like almost to the, to the degree where sometimes I will literally just sit back and I, and I will try to encourage the guys to, to almost find a way. Um, and that's been my philosophy as well, because mm -hmm. we didn't really know exactly how to, to get to the top. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, find a way. And you can only really do that through listening, through feeling, through having an open mind, and, and through a relationship, um, mm -hmm. and of course, positive feedback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you feel like set Max apart? What were some of the things you noticed about him early on that you 
realized you were adjusting and, and I, your technique? I think performance. Um, Max was always able to, to perform under pressure, no matter what it was, whether it's flipping cards or um, <laughs> wherever, wherever it is he decides to do. You know, stick him in a room like this, he'll, he'll, he'll deliver um, to the best of his ability. So he wasn't necessarily the, the biggest, you know, had, had the biggest physical potential and talent, um, but he had a level head, very calm, and, and I like that. Mm-hmm. And as we developed, um, you know, I realized as well that, that he likes efficiency, and so do I. Um, and that's something we had in common. I, I, I don't like doing things for doing things' sake. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a normal thing in gymnastics to think about numbers. Okay, so, you know, five routines, six routines. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got a four-hour session. We have to do four hours worth of training. And something that Max and I developed along the way was, was actually, let's get in the gym and do what we need to do. Because that makes you feel good, that makes you feel confident, that makes you feel like you've achieved. If you say five and your first two are good, and then you do four more that are bad, you feel great as a coach because they've worked hard, they've, they've done everything. Mm-hmm. But the gymnast and the athlete, you know, they're, they're now demotivated. They're like, oh, for God's sake, what have I got to do this for? And mm-hmm. okay, at the end of the week, they're, they're knackered and you feel like, yes, we've done it. Well, actually, if they do one and they smash it, Mm-hmm. They're on top of the world and they're going to go into the next session feeling even better mm-hmm. and better. And by the time the Olympics came around, mm-hmm. our 30 hour a week program, our six hour a day program turned into sometimes half an hour sessions. Mm-hmm. And that is no exaggeration. Mm-hmm. That come with a lot of right. stress yeah. and barriers from other people because obviously whilst I'm looking at the individual situation, I have to think of the bigger team situation. I have to work with um, British Gymnastics, the other athletes and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So then I become a, a bit of a mediator. I, you know, I sit in your chair and try to, to, to sort of keep everybody um, happy. And that was my biggest stress in, mm-hmm. in my whole journey, if I'm honest, was realizing what was right for Max, realizing, well, actually, that is going to have an impact on the rest of the team and just trying to keep those mm-hmm. things in, in balance. And yeah. I think if you, if you can recognize those things, you can really get the best out of everybody as long as everybody can sort of buy into it and, and you're not going off on a tangent on your own, you're trying to do it within the team, if that makes sense. I think it's brilliant what you're saying about um, sort of smashing the sort of concept of certain um, you know, expectations of preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I have this, the, 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 obviously, you know, you have to do a certain amount of practice um, because it's, you know, to keep um, sort of fit and flexible and all that sort of thing. But there is a real tendency to measure practice for musicians um, and often parents of musicians and students to measure practice in hours rather than results. Yeah. Um, and I, I talk about this thing, trophy practicing, you know, which is when they come out of a room and say, I've done six hours. And you think, yeah, let's measure that and how good it was at the end as compared to the beginning or whether it's valuable or whatever. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about preparation as you're talking about it is that it's very cumulative. Um, and if you, if you keep, it's like if you're trying to lose weight, if you weigh yourself every day, it doesn't work. You, you have to just measure it in, in longer, longer stretches. Mm-hmm. You know, a week's worth of, of a particular sort of work is much more valuable to analyze than just what's happened on a particular day. And you said that you like to hear silence coming from out a of practice, practice room. Absolutely. So explain yes. that, because I thought that was yeah. fascinating. Well, I think the thing is with, um, it must be the same as you've said, that there's much repetition in practicing and preparation. Um, you, you do need to do things several times to actually um, teach every bit of your body and your mind and your sound the right, the right sort of um, things that need to be coming out. But in repetition, it, 
you actually, I mean, it, it, people talk about mind, mindless repetition. You cannot do that. It, it doesn't work at all. It, in fact, it just gets worse um, with mindless repetition. So I love it. If I hear a student practicing, the academy is really, really badly soundproofed. So you can hear an awful lot of people practicing as you're wandering around. Um, but if you hear somebody play something and then just play it again and play it again and play it again, it just drives me nuts because what you want is to play it, think, what do I have to do to make that? better, what did that feel like, what shall I do, what shall I try now, what shall I experiment with, and then, and then try it again, and have those little moments in between, um, rather than just saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. It's just, it's, it's just, um, it's so time-saving, right. sure. you know, to, 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 to repeat with a reason. I, I completely agree. I mean, in, in, in gymnastics, it's, you know, you have to do as, as, a, as a junior, as a beginner, you have to, it's like building a house, you have to have the foundation, so you have to do repetitions, you have to get everything right, you know, if you, you do just go time and time and time again, you have to do it. There, there really isn't another way around it. No. Uh, but that's building your robustness, that's building your confidence, it's giving you all the tools you need. And then you're just doing the, like, the final little bits. Mm -hmm. Quite often people get caught in, well, I'm used to doing those numbers, and actually it's quite, it's quite an, anxiety, you know, an anxious process to actually say, okay, it's finished, let's go home. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, hang on, what, what do you mean go home? Like, I need to practice. No, 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 we're done for today, you know. And it, and it takes a lot of courage to do that, yeah. you know, and, and actually moving into a competition environment. The one thing, there is, num there is one thing that I will say that, that will resonate with me and I will tell everybody the same mm -hmm. thing, is that the athlete, or the performer, should I say, has to be happy. Yeah. That's it. I'm not interested. He could have not done any training for three weeks beforehand. He's happy. Mm -hmm. He's confident. Right. He's going to do his job. It's yeah. interesting to think of the little builds of confidence by breaking smaller traditions and then by being willing to stop practice, how that leads up to enough trust in your relationship to make a switch in five minutes to a different routine, right? That there's interesting little ways that you show up in that relationship over and over again for we can be flexible, we can do what you need in the moment, yeah. and then when you have to switch, You've set it up so that you can absolutely um, do that in a meaningful way. Absolutely, and and that that's key as well because there will be times when I, I'll use the, the time in the gym, if you like, as an mm -hmm. example, when the athlete will say, "Yeah, okay, I feel like I'm done." Well, actually, no, you're not done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Need to get, right. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm not I'm not for one minute saying you know you have to just not train. Right. What I'm saying is you have to you have to listen, you have to look, you have to you have to have an open mind to see. Okay, we need to get from A to B in the most efficient way the most positive way and feeling the most confident at the end of it. And isn't that the fear though? The fear is that we will become irrelevant as coaches if we aren't directing things. Uh, 100%. <laughs> well, that, I mean, I think that the, the funny thing is I suppose in some ways our, my goal in life as a cello professor mm -hmm. is to become irrelevant mm -hmm. to each student as they fledge, if you like, or, right. or, or, or leave. But What's really important is that they fledge with all the equipment right. safely and, and established. But, but I mean, in, it's that process which is exactly as you've talked about takes this takes this time, right. you know. And I think what what you're talking about about breaking up the um, the sort of the pillars 
into what yeah. actually suits you. I think it, it, that teaches versatility. It teaches them to be adaptable, to be, um, you know, to be able to jump on a call from the London Symphony Orchestra and go and play in the violin section that day because they're used to just turning on a sixpence. Whereas if they, they think they only function if they do eight hours, hours practice a day and it's got to consist of scales, arpeggios, studies, save check, bark, and all that sort of thing. If they, if they can only function like that, they're not going to be a working musician. You know, you don't have the time. To, to do that. It's funny what they hang their hat on because actually medical students trophy practice too, <laughs> like for how many hours they've studied for an exam. Yeah. But that they're starting, they're looking for things rather than, and it's interesting because the conceptualization I hear from both of you is you are a sounding board, right? So you're a place of good, reliable, safe information versus being this external critic. Um, I find the medical students have plenty of internal critic and don't need... Um, you know, many want to pile on or, or those kinds of pieces. Do you feel like that's true for the high performers in your areas too, or the internal, you know, drive and... I think that this motivation thing that, that you've talked about is, is absolutely crucial. I mean, if you don't love music, it's not going to work because the job of the musician is um, to communicate that thing and it's exactly as you're saying if you're not happy doing it then you're going to the, the message you send is not going to be something that people are going to pay tickets to, to watch um, but I mean I think that in, the, in terms of the internal critic or the internal analyst um, I think what I find students are the worst at is picking up what what's good mm. yeah. they're very quick to say I messed that up I messed this up I yeah. didn't like this you know you know, and I, I've sat there and thought, well, this is the first time I've actually really heard your full interpretation and understood it. But mm -hmm. they've got bogged down in little technical intricacies that haven't registered. Mm -hmm. you know. So do you then intentionally, do you usually start with the positive things? Or how do you start a relationship with a new musician? Oh, gosh, that's really hard. I mean, it's um, hear them play. That's mm -hmm. the thing. Let them play. Let's just, and when, you know, obviously if somebody comes from a consultation lesson, they're nervous or for an audition, it's such an artificial environment, it's really difficult. So you have to really try and put people at their ease and just listen and watch and see what they've got. And it's as you say, you, you clock if they've, they want to perform, if they like the idea of it. Um, and, and then just, just uh, you, 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 there's no formula. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like friendships. I mean, you, know, you never know what's going to work. But, sometimes, but you sometimes, sometimes you click. Sometimes you click, absolutely. And sometimes you don't. And I think you have to be very honest when that's the, the case as well. hundred percent. I've had athletes that, um, you know, that maybe our relationship wasn't the way it should be, or they've, they've gone through a stage. So I, I've got one lad who's in the team with, with Max, a guy called Brim Bevan. And, um, you know, when he was quite young, he was a massive talent. Big, you know, this, this, everyone was excited about him. And, and unfortunately, you know, he come from quite a poor background, but his father died at a young age. Uh, and I could see that my intensity and my drive, my passion, that I thought was, was really going to get him through that situation was actually causing a bit of a problem. And actually, my colleague sitting down here, Matt Jackson, is um, the head coach of the club um, for, for men. Um, at that time, I, I recognised that, so I, I asked Matt if he would coach him for a little while. And Matt took him for six months, and I believe 100% that that honesty and that openness and not my um, ego to say, no, he's my gymnast, and if I can't have him, no one else is, you know, that saved him. Yeah. And that saved his career. And, right, yeah. and now I'm, I've got you know a bright future in, in mind for him, and um, I think you, you're absolutely everything you just said there is absolutely 
bang on money. And figuring out the individual, yeah. what they need, and whether or not you're a fit, because you don't have to be a fit for everyone. Well, I mean, I think the thing is, if, if everybody likes a particular musician, it usually means there's something a bit bland. Hmm. You know, what you really want mm-hmm. is some, you know, something that really sparks, you know, fires you up. And sometimes it, if that spark doesn't happen between you and a student or a student and an audience or a musician and an audience, mm-hmm. then you put them with a different audience or a different teacher and it will. Right. So it's, it's, just, um, it's just knowing when to back off and say, actually, this one's... And hidden behind high performers is vulnerability, which is an interesting part of what both of you. So a lot of the pushback I get, you know, is oh, this is touchy feely, or it doesn't, you know, it's too emotional for deciding when. You know, people just need to be able to take feedback. That's what I hear a lot of times. But you're going to psychologically protect yourself no matter what. So you can come straight on with feedback. But if you aren't respecting that that person has defense mechanisms and everything else, you're just hitting your head against what isn't actually their learning edge, right? I think. Feedback has got to have the word in front of it, which is constructive, mm-hmm. um, because uh, otherwise, what's the point? Right. I mean, I, I think, um, and the, the way we deliver it is, you know, endless, there are endless strategies around, mm-hmm. around it, but I think they are vulnerable, and they're often very, very exposed on a concert yes. platform. And or on a world stage. On a world stage, you know. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I mean, I just get terrified watching you guys. <laughs> right. um, you know, um, and they could hurt themselves. I mean, you don't hurt yourself playing the violin. I mean, not intentionally. <laughs> I know, now we're, like, thinking. Yeah. How could no, you hurt yourself? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but they are vulnerable, and you have to be respectful of that, and the fact that the vulnerability is actually often a huge source of the appeal Mm-hmm. that it makes them sensitive, it makes them aware, it makes them want to communicate, and it makes them very receptive. So being totally invulnerable doesn't necessarily create a good mindset to, to perform. Yeah, it's wonderful. So we have a little bit of time left. We can open up for questions, and then actually we're going to get to do roundtables, and then the three of us will come around to roundtables, and we can um, answer those. But if you have questions now about feedback, we can do them for the large group, and then we will also be available after. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Can you see? Yeah. I think there's one coming. Yes. Yes, behind you, a mic is coming. Or you can pretend. We're flexible. And I'll repeat it. Yeah. Sure. My question is: Twenty years ago, the British. Twenty years ago, the British men were fighting just to qualify a team to the Olympics, and now you guys are fighting for medals. What happened in the last two decades that has made that happen? There, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things. Obviously, there's money, there's, there's venues, there's coaching, education. There's, but the biggest thing that's changed, and, and this, this, this resonates around the country now, is a self-belief, not just in the athletes and the coaches. You, you start a journey believing that you're going to get a result. And that happened, that, that was created by a couple of results. You know, you had Lewis Smith and Dan Keane from Huntingdon that, that, that got one or two, and Beth Tweddle that got some results. And people start thinking, you know, there's a medal there. We, we, why can, why, if they can do it, we can do it. Plus, there's a bit of money. Plus, there's a medical support, which I think people were talking about earlier with Michael Owen, which, you know, has, has really helped us raise the game. Um, you know, then you've got your sports science and, and everything else. You've got your motivated coaches that aren't just motivated and, and crazy, you know, because they're, they're, they're in the gym 24 hours. They've actually got a little bit of, um, 
you know, information in their, in their minds as well. Um, and and self-belief. If, if you believe something and you, and you really do believe it, you're already halfway there. And, and that is the biggest thing in our small community that has changed mm -hmm. is you start your career with, with a real goal, not just, wow, I could go and see a few countries and drink some French beer, you know? <laughs> How did you guys how did you guys do it when other countries didn't? Because a lot of what you're saying, other countries had. Uh, you know, like, centralized system, you guys had that already in the 1990s with Lila Shah. You had, things were already happening. I'm just more trying to put my finger on what, what changed. Because uh, sports science, that's true, but, but we all have access to that. Uh, somehow, Great Britain did something that other people didn't. And that's but, what I've tried to wrap my brain sure, around. Sure, well, one of the things that we didn't do when we became successful was centralisation. That was something we realised our culture isn't, isn't good, it's not good for us as British people to be institutionalised. You know, we need to, to grow, we need to breathe, we need to be able to see. And, and as soon as we come away from centralisation, a group of coaches felt, wow, we can step up and we can prove ourselves. Uh, alongside that became natural, healthy competition, natural, healthy, you know, um, discussions about who's doing what, who's doing that. And of course, you start trying to beat your peers. When you've got an institutionalised, centralised system, it doesn't matter how much money you've got in gymnastics, it's, it's, it's not going to work in Great Britain because we're a small country. In bigger countries, maybe that's the only way. But then you look at the way their governments and their, their you know, financial situations have gone, maybe they're not getting the resources they once had. Plus, human nature, the way we're developing, you've got a lot of these, these, these um, uh, organisations that, that were quite forceful and dictatorships were ruling, if you like, mm -hmm. in the communism states mm -hmm. where you could push, you could push. You can't do that now. And we're leaders, Great Britain are leaders in listening and actually working with the individual and, and, and the team and actually creating an environment where people really can be the best they can possibly be. That might sound a bit nancy-pansy, but it creates confidence. Mm -hmm. And if you can create a competitive um, sort of, you know, in, in fire inside you, alongside confidence, you know, you've only got to have a little bit of technical knowledge. I, I, if, if I'm honest with you, I'm not the greatest technician, but I can make someone feel absolutely fantastic, and I can make them want to beat the next person in the room. And if you can do that across the country, and compete within the country and then come together as one team, you're already one step ahead of the game. Simple as that. And that seems to actually characterize both of your philosophies, right? You are creating, you, through the way that you do feedback, you are creating highly actualized musicians or athletes, right, that are competing and doing things at a high level versus being dependent on you. And I do think that's the flip of you know, really giving that full kind of respectful feedback is that you create that. Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing is that um, there are times when you know that somebody needs a real boost of confidence mm -hmm. um, more than they need some honest feedback. Yes. So, uh, or constructive feedback. So it, it is knowing that that basis of competence is confidence, and com confidence and competence are, are mutually very uh, interdependent. And um, I think generating that sort of atmosphere can become a totally self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Which means that if you tell someone they can do it, then they believe it. Absolutely. Especially if they trust you. Yeah. I'm all up over. Yeah. I know, 30 seconds. <laughs> I know, we should be like just pumping and uh, yeah. No, I want to carry on. Yeah, absolutely. Now we can do it in round tables as well. Excellent. Yeah. Do you have one? We have time for one more and then. 
that was a wonderful. So question about the difference between practice and performance. So I would assume that both of you have adopted a given coaching style over the years, and obviously you modify, modify that, as you said, to the individual. But have you found that when you watch someone that does quite well in practice, but can't seem to bring that to bear from a performance perspective, can you provide any anecdotes on how potentially with those individual cases that is informed or modified how you give feedback and instruction? Just with my own personal anecdote of the person that tends to have the paralysis by analysis, which obviously is fed by the type of feedback that we're giving them. I, th I think um, it comes back to environment. Uh, and, and as a coach or as a leader, as, as, a, as a person leading the program, you've got a responsibility to give the person tools to be able to, to perform and not just train and not just practice. Uh, and we do that by actually creating stressful environments within our training program. So we'll actually, I might, you know, in our gym, we've got a thousand rec kids that are running around. So we might actually go and invite all of them and their parents into the gym, sit down and make the athlete perform their practice routine in front of all these people. A new thing that we're doing, um, and again, this is the athletes that have actually introduced this, not me, because I'm not very good with uh, modern technology, is, uh, uh, what is it, the live feedback thing on Facebook? or mm -hmm. what is it? Yeah. So they're actually filming their own routines live. So they've, you know, some, like Max, for instance, might have a thousand people watching him do his practice routine. Mm. It's the best training he's ever had. Mm. You know, so now I've adopted that and, and I'm using that. Obviously, we have to wait till they're old enough because there's, there's child protection issues. But it's always looking outside the box and trying to make stressful environments, um, safe stressful environments, mm -hmm. for the athletes to really develop. I don't know. If mm -hmm. Absolutely the same thing. I mean, the thing that makes um, a, performance, a performance is that there are people watching you. Mm. So if you um, arrange to have people watch you, you know, then that's practicing that. I think the other thing is as well is that adrenaline um, is only produced, you know, when when there is a genuinely stressful situation. So you have to you have to create it. I mean, we are atavistic response to to, to adrenaline is is um, fight or flight, and that obviously um, creates incredibly unhelpful physical reactions if you've got to play a piece of Mozart or Beethoven. I mean, you know, you, you, you know, everything has gone to the big muscles, you know, you've diverted blood away from the guts, you know. You can't walk, but, you know, it, and, and, yes. and you suddenly have to do very delicate fine little movements, movements fine movements um, with, with your fingers, and you also have to be kind of very much in contact with an artistic mindset. So you can, but you can do it if you practice doing it. If you, it's when the difference between, there are three things. You, you talked about practice and about performance. There's practice... There's performance and there's practicing performance, yeah. um, and I think it's it's a combination of all those things that's that's crucial. I think it's also incredibly important that um, the level of preparation can really alleviate alleviate the the effects of adrenalism. If you're adrenaline, if you're prepared, you can you can say actually I can do this. And confidence that yeah. you talked about. Do you, do you think it helps as well? Have you found that it helps actually taking taking your athletes, taking your your, your students? out of their environment and put them in an uncomfortable environment totally. as well. Yes. Um, you know, so maybe in a, in a, because we're lucky enough to have a, a set up with, with world-class apparatus. And obviously if we go to the National Centre, it's lovely. It's nice and safe, nice soft mats. But actually if we then go to some dodgy gym where the apparatus isn't so, so healthy and they can still perform, then you know that you're doing something right. 
Actually, that's really interesting. For us, it's the other way around, because, you, know, you know, if you're in a clapped-out practice room with a piano with half the ivories missing and all the rest of it, and then you take a student and place them in a beautiful concert mm -hmm. hall and say, OK, do it here now, it, mm -hmm. that's more daunting. But it's also, with, if they've got the right sort of feeling about being an artist and being a performer, it can also be incredibly exciting for them as well. Yeah. So, uh, or playing an incredible so. instrument or all that. Yeah, absolutely. So yes. now we should probably switch to round tables. Yeah. Thank, you Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, Pleasure. so fun. Thank you.